1: We're in a race
0: to make value work.
1: Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency based framework for health value,
2: Race to Value listeners, this week you're going to hear from the Physician Organization of Michigan, Accountable Care Organization, POMACO. POM is a statewide ACO in the Medicare Shared Savings Program that has saved the Medicare Trust Fund more than $199 million to date. It's a physician-led partnership in operation since 2013 that supports more than 5,000 providers serving approximately 60,000 Medicare beneficiaries. POM-ACO aligned with the University of Michigan Health System, whose faculty group practice participated in one of the early Medicare demonstration projects that paved the way for ACOs under federal health care reform years ago. This is an outstanding accountable care organization led by Dr. Tim Peterson and Kendall Sisla.
3: Eric, these are two leaders in value-based care that I'm really excited to showcase on the Race to Value podcast. Dr. Tim Peterson is the Population Health Executive for Michigan Medicine, where he's responsible for population health and value-based care strategies. He's also the ACO Executive and Chairman for POMACO. He's also serving as an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine and is in active practice. We also have the great privilege of speaking with Kendall Sislow, the Chief Operating Officer at POMACO. Kendall provides leadership to support more than 5,000 healthcare providers to deliver high-quality care that improves clinical outcomes. She has extensive experience in strategic planning, population health, operations management, and care management interventions.
2: Well, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Tim Peterson and Kendall Sislow of POMACO as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Peterson and Kendall, welcome to the Race to Value. We're so excited to have you on this week.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. We're glad to be here.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Well, as we begin our conversation today, I, I wanted to talk about the history of Physician Organization of Michigan ACO, or ACO for short. ACO is a physician-led partnership and operation since 2013 presently supporting more than 5,000 providers serving approximately 60,000 beneficiaries. Its mission is to collaborate with patients, providers, and communities to improve population health through coordinated high-quality care at a lower cost. POM-ACO is currently participating in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, Basic Track E, and it has saved the Medicare Trust Fund more than $199 million to date. POM-ACO success I know is largely due to the experience of the University of Michigan Health System, whose faculty group practice participated in the Medicare demonstration project that actually paved the way for ACOs under federal healthcare reforms years ago. And UMHS supported the startup costs for POMACO, and in 2014 transitioned all of its faculty positions into the ACO. So I wanted to see if you both could highlight some of the key components of POMACO's approach to VBC delivery over the last few years, including success through collaboration, delivering care locally, aligning incentives with other payers when possible to reduce provider burden, and then setting some common goals to unite providers throughout the state. I'd I'd love to hear more about the the wonderful work you're doing there at the ACO.
0: Sure, the first thing I'd say is POMACO is really unique in the Medicare Shared Savings Program We have, over the course of our history, really worked hard to build a network that is transparent and collaborative and puts our providers at the center of everything that we are working toward. And although the University of Michigan faculty group practice is the largest group of providers under a single entity that participates in POM, I'm just going to push back a little bit on your very polite introduction and say that the University of Michigan faculty are not necessarily the drivers of our performance per se. Really, our network has been just phenomenally working together for all these years, And, and our success is due as much to our community providers as it is to our academic practice. The University of Michigan did begin participating in the Medicare demonstration projects very early on and has participated in all of them through the MSSP today, but our focus has really been about Leveraging the strengths of the academic practice in conjunction with the community network that we've put together and really advancing the cause of value-based care across the entire state of Michigan. And I think the novelty of our model is really both pushing out the things that we are working toward improving in the academic space to the community across the state of Michigan, as well as pulling from the community into the academic practice, those things that you know maybe we aren't necessarily as geared toward as academic providers. So it really is a uh, collaboration across the entire state of Michigan, I think, that's led to the dramatic success that we've experienced at POM.
1: So I, I will just clarify, we are comprised of six physician organizations. Uh, as of January first, 2022, we'll be six physician organizations around the state of Michigan, we have both employed and independent providers. So as Tim was mentioning, and we really are a group that achieves our success through collaboration. We have our typical governance structure that you would see in other organizations of boards and committees that are required to meet at a cer- certain frequency and they're, they're very engaged and they work very hard. But at the request of all of our partners together, we have other forums where we collaborate and engage that aren't mandated by our governance structure, but that the group collectively finds very helpful. And so we have those every couple of months we have our joint committee meetings and something we call learning health systems, which is really just an opportunity for the groups to come together and share best practices and learn from one another. And as a result of those conversations, our partners don't just meet in the forums that we hold for all of POMACO, but they connect outside of our typical meeting structure and they work together sort of one-on-one. And it's it's really, really great to see. And it's because of that work that POM has been so successful.
3: Dr. Kendall, thank you for that intro. I'd like to better understand the public and population health dynamics within your state. As a state, Michigan has room to improve health outcomes for its citizens a recent study from wallet hub ranks michigan as the 11th fattest state in the us and the us news and world reports public health rankings of states has michigan ranked number 39 overall with cited challenges including mental health obesity and smoking and according to united health foundation michigan has the 13th highest rate of smoking and cancer deaths and the eighth highest rate of cardiovascular deaths Smoking alone costs the U.S. an estimated $170 billion annually in direct health care costs. Michigan also has the 18th highest rate of obesity and a correspondingly high rate of diabetes, a disease that costs an estimated $7,900 a year in medical care per patient, which is double the cost for someone of healthy weight. And you have a city like Flint that's number one unhealthiest city in the state, which has experienced decades of urban decay after once being a bustling blue-collar town. And there are challenges with Detroit as well, which was just ranked number one by WalletHub as the neediest city in the U.S. Can you describe some of the unique public health and chronic disease challenges facing the Michiganders that you serve? And how do the medical management programs of the ACO meet the unique health needs of your patients?
0: Well, Those are some sobering statistics. And I think uh, just about every state in the union has its own unique opportunities to improve the health of its population. You know, Michigan is the home of the automobile, which in many of our urban cores creates some transportation infrastructure that's really centered around the car and not necessarily centered around mobility or fitness or activity. And Michigan's a pretty rural state, actually. You don't have to get too far outside of many of our major cities and you find yourself in really rural environments. One of the really great advantages that we've built in POMACO to advance the goals of our patient population and really focus on their health and wellness is what you heard me talk about a second ago in that very decentralized way that we think about ourselves. We have providers all across all geographies in our state, uh, very rural providers, very urban providers, and we, we manage our network in such a way where we target Health goals. We target quality outcomes, we target improvement opportunities for our population, but really enable our providers in their local space to work in the way that's going to make the most sense for them. So, you know, our urban providers face different challenges than our rural providers face. Mental health care access is a problem everywhere, not just the state of Michigan, but it's a really unique problem if you're in the rural part of Michigan versus one of the urban parts of Michigan. So a lot of what we try to do with our provider population is use the data that we have available to us through the Medicare Shared Savings Program, through the claim speeds that we have, provide those back to our network so that they're able to marry those with their clinical information and really understand the unique aspects of what their individual patient population in their individual market is facing. And then we try and bring everybody back together in those forums that Kendall was talking about a second ago to really share information about how they are tackling their patient population's needs and disseminating that information across our network. Again, that cross-pollination that I described a second ago so that we're pulling from the community inward and pushing out to the community outward across our entire network so that everybody has access to the best information possible and can really tailor those solutions to meet their patients' needs in the way that's gonna work for their providers and is gonna work for their patients. And I I think part of our success has really been that enablement of local solutions to local problems, as opposed to trying to fit everybody into a standardized one-size-fits-all kind of problem-solving situation.
2: One of the questions I've really been wanting to ask both of you is how POMACO includes a patient perspective and value-based care. This is such a challenge since value-based care is an unfamiliar concept to most patients. As a matter of fact, There was a study that came out just a few months ago from point-click care on this very issue. About a third of survey respondents between the ages of 25 to 34 said they had heard of or understood the concepts of value-based care. However, only 7% of 55 to 64-year-olds and 4% of respondents over 65 reported ever hearing about value-based care. And I was just thinking like, wow, this is such a big challenge to overcome when you only have about 4% of Medicare patients that have even heard of value-based care and understands the role of an ACO and how it can improve outcomes. So as I understand, POM ACO has a very active, very robust beneficiary committee, and you've leaned on them for several key projects over the years to improve patient engagement, promote cost transparency so they can pay less out of pocket, which will also you know, help your benchmark performance. Can you talk about the importance of including a patient perspective in value-based care? And how does POM ACO approach beneficiary engagement as a key strategy for success?
0: Well, I'll start with a little bit here, but Kendall's going to really talk about, I think, some of the details of how we've approached this. I'm really proud of all the work that our network has done, and and Kendall and our team in particular, are doing to bring the voice of the beneficiary into our improvement opportunities as a network, as an ACO together. You know, when we started down this population health journey as an industry, I think most of us really rallied around the concept of the triple aim, you know, improving quality, improving patient experience, and improving healthcare spending. That triple aim, obviously, we've broadened over time to include the perspective of, of providers and teams. And, and we talk about the quadruple aim now, including provider experience or satisfaction or team engagement, depending on you know, which organization you're in or, or how, that might, how that language might work in your space. But that triple aim was really, it was designed to put the patient at the center of all of our improvement efforts. But the measurements of healthcare spending in that, in that original triple aim were really about insurance payments, whether that's government insurance or commercial insurance. And so over the course of many years now, we've, we've really been building up this capacity to bring the voice of the beneficiary into our work. We have a beneficiary engagement committee that's a subcommittee of our board, and we bring beneficiaries from across our network, all those different geographies that you heard me talk about a second ago, the rural, the urban, all around the state of Michigan. We bring beneficiaries together, and we really ask them very important questions to help get their perspective in strategy and tactics and communication to help our doctors understand what our patients are looking for and what our patients need, to help our patients understand what we're trying to accomplish. And so we can find that sweet spot where it makes sense to all of us what it is that we're trying to work toward. I think you could reasonably ask yourself whether patients need to understand value-based payments. I mean, Arguably, what the patient should care the most about is the quality of care that they're receiving and what it's going to cost them, both in a premium sense, but also in an out-of-pocket You know, copay deductible sort of sense. I think most of what we spend our time on when we think about value-based care on an economic basis are things that that most patients probably shouldn't concern themselves with. And I don't know that I really want to try and educate patients about the nuances of value-based care or all of the different pieces and parts that we have to manage on the back end in order to be successful in value-based payment arrangements. But in our space, in POM, where we think about value of healthcare to the beneficiary again it's about the quality of care that they're receiving and it's about the payments that they're making and so within the medicare program it's it's relatively easy for us to figure out what their expenditures are going to be especially when it comes to part b payments because they're they're on the hook for about 20% of the allowed amount of of the part b expenditures and so we've we've actually started to spend a lot of time thinking about how the the care delivered to our beneficiary population is impacting their pocket, in that 20% of the the copay they face for the Part B payments, and really trying to help our providers understand how their referral patterns, how patient utilization patterns, are impacting not just our financial performance as an ACO, but also the beneficiaries. And really, again, finding that sweet spot where our interests, our needs, are aligned with our patients' interests and our patients' needs, and working on programs, tactics, and communications that make that alignment crystal clear so that everybody can see that this is not just a contractual arrangement that the doctors are in, where the doctors are trying to save Medicare money so the doctors can earn a bonus payment, but the doctors are in this arrangement because we care about our patient's spending, and we are aligning with our patient's goals, and if we do this right, both of us, all three of us, frankly, including Medicare, end up better off. The trust funds save some money. The patients save money. And the providers are rewarded for paying attention to these economic issues. And that that is an ideal win-win-win scenario.
1: It's really, it's been fantastic to have Medicare beneficiaries in the room and to have that patient voice really carried through, not only in our Medicare beneficiary advisory committee, but also in our board. We have a beneficiary who is a voting member on our board and committee members from the Medicare beneficiary advisory committee attend other committee meetings too, to give their insight on clinical initiatives that we might be exploring or operational tactics for how we want to engage our beneficiaries. One of the things that the Beneficiary Committee worked uh, really hard on uh, in 2021 that they should be and I, and are very proud of, a CAPS analysis. So this is the uh, annual uh, sort of patient uh, satisfaction survey, the Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems Survey that ACOs are scored on. And what the Medicare Beneficiary Advisory Committee did is they looked at our uh, 2019 uh, CAPS results. And they looked for survey domains where the POMACO score was at or below the average score for uh, the region. And we learned a lot through those conversations. And uh, we ended up putting together a a document that was submitted to all of our provider organizations and for them to uh, distribute to their providers. And it really came from our Medicare beneficiaries where for example, one of the things that was below average was access to specialists. And so initially we had thought at the sort of administrative level, we thought, well, you know, maybe we just, you know, we need more specialists or we need to get patients in faster. And what our beneficiary said was actually, no, it's it's not always the timing from the referral to getting into the specialist, but it's about setting clear expectations. So as long as the providers can set the the primary care provider or the referring provider can set reasonable expectations for the wait time based on their condition so how long should i expect to wait how long is acceptable to wait given the diagnosis that that i have then that's okay but uh, we need clear expectations and so there were you know there are all kinds of things like that where uh, we learned for our medicare beneficiaries how we could do better as an organization and how our providers could help the beneficiaries in giving a really positive patient experience.
2: I wanted to stay on this topic of patient engagement a little while longer. And I wanted you both to discuss uh, the importance of trust in the patient relationship. And of course, there's nothing more sacrosanct than the trust that a patient has with their provider and that that in, in the immediacy of that relationship. But then when you have centralized capabilities that support ACO operations, I know that can get a little confusing for patients to maybe understand if they're interfacing with a a care coordinator or someone else that is working on behalf of the physician office. I mean, I remember years ago when I was the CEO of an accountable care organization, and this was in the early days of the MSSP, and we had to get permission from all of our beneficiaries to share their data so we can get a claims line feed from Medicare. And I remember calling patients and telling them what the ACO was and why we needed their data. And I remember them saying, oh, this is, sounds like Obamacare, you know, I'm like I don't trust you and they hang up. So I, I just wanted to maybe ask you both just, you know, how do you approach within POM ACO the relationship and the, the trust with patients as you look to engage those beneficiaries so that you're mutually aligned and improving outcomes and delivering a higher value.
0: You know, it's funny, Eric, if you walked into my office, you would see file cabinets full of the letters that we used to mail out to patients in order to inform them about the Medicare Shared Savings Program and get their permission to share their data. <laughs> because I've got to save those for 10 years, they're stuck in a file cabinet in my office. And it's it's a good reminder of how the program has evolved over time. But to your question about building trust and maintaining clarity of communication, the way we have approached that at POM has been, really been twofold. On the one hand, we actually don't spend a lot of time or resources developing central infrastructure at the ACO level. Our network of providers around the entire state, you know, they have broad swaths of populations that they're accountable to, not just the Medicare Shared Savings Program population, but other payer populations that That they're serving, uh, whether in value or not in value. And many of them have built infrastructure in their local market to accomplish a lot of these things, whether it's care management, whether it's pharmacists, whether it's um, data integration or data analytics. And so, you know, our goal at POM is not necessarily to, to do all of that work for them or to centralize those efforts specific to the Medicare shared savings program population. And we actually really think that our providers are more likely to be successful if if they are working on initiatives that serve more than a singular patient population. And so we try to feed the resources to them locally so that they can do this work. And, And they're really doing that local interface. So for the patient, it's pretty seamless. I think most of the patients don't really know that POM exists. They may see our logo on the beneficiary notice. But our logo is right next to their doctor's logo. So it's not about us. It's really about us supporting their provider or their team. And, and they see that we are aligned with their provider. And I think that's, that's the second piece of, of how we have approached this for all of the communication that we put out, whether it's to our network or whether it's something that is patient-facing like the beneficiary notification letter or the poster that has to be on display in all the offices. It is not just the POM letterhead that these items go on, but it's our letterhead has all of the participating provider organizations logos associated with it as well, so that our patients and our providers see that we are all in this together. We are all working together to the same goals, to the same outcomes. We're all supporting each other in this work. And there really isn't a dichotomy. There really isn't anything for anybody to get confused about whether a resource is coming from us or locally, because it all, it all looks the same to the patient, because it's really all about supporting that relationship central to this, to this whole endeavor.
1: I think another example of how we are able to take data and findings that, that we have at the POMACO collective level and get that down to the patient level is with a particular uh, specialty provider that we identified uh, in the state of Michigan who delivers care that is more expensive and more frequent than uh, other specialty providers that deliver that same care. And so we have been monitoring this data for some time and we are in the process currently of releasing uh, physician organization specific data to physician organizations for them, them to distribute down to their providers. And we can get it of course at the provider level too, at the practice level. And in 2022, well, one of the initiatives that our Medicare Beneficiary Advisory Committee uh, hopes to take on is to consider options for how to take this message and deliver it to beneficiaries. And the message really is where could, other places that you can go that will, give, that will deliver the same uh, high quality care, but at a lower cost. And as Tim mentioned earlier, this is really at a lower cost to the patient because it's a, it's a Part B claim and 20% of a lesser amount is a lesser amount for the patient. And so our Medicare beneficiaries will really be taking a look at how to communicate this to patients.
0: And I'll give you another example as well. We're we're launching here in the new year uh, an initiative specific to assist our dialysis beneficiaries. You know, these these are patients that are, interact with healthcare vast uh, amounts of time more than any regular beneficiary. These patients are in dialysis centers for hours and hours a week. And really it's an opportunity where we can try and serve them better and without asking them to do more. And so we're gonna be collecting, we're gonna be partnering with uh, some dialysis providers trying to find those patients that are having some difficulty attending appointments, those patients who may be having higher hospitalization rates, higher ER utilization rates, and really working with those dialysis centers where those patients are already spending large amounts of time to try and put together some, some work and some initiatives and understand what their, those patients' barriers to care are so that we can help alleviate those barriers and help those patients be able to attend their dialysis appointments more regularly. And hopefully avoid some of that downstream utilization that, I mean, the patients don't want to be in the ER, the patients don't want to be in the hospital, but something is preventing them from getting to dialysis with the frequency that their nephrologist needs them to. And so that initiative, although we're bringing that information centrally into POMACO and we're working with those dialysis providers in a central fashion, that information is going to get pushed back out to the piece of our network where the, where the individual patient may be attributed, where that person is getting the care that, uh, that they need. And really supporting the primary care provider, really supporting that local care management team to know more about this patient, to get access to the information that that they need to be able to care manage, to plan around solving the gap that this patient faces, and building that interface with a nephrologist. Because the, the nephrologist may see patients from multiple parts of our network, and it would be more burdensome for that nephrologist to try and make that link with every individual PCP or every individual care manager that might exist. That if we can bring that information in centrally to POM and then push it back out, we'll take responsibility to push it back out across our network and the directions that it needs to go to get to the people that can act on it. We're really excited to see the impact this can have for this particularly vulnerable patient population. And we're really looking forward to the outcomes that, that this program is going to be able to drive. But to those beneficiaries, it'll look, like it, it'll look like their doctor is taking a more active stance in their care because their doctor is taking a more active stance in their care but we're trying to bring that information together at POM. And I think that's the secret sauce behind how we've approached problem-solving at POMA
1: One other uh, thing I'd like to mention about the, you know, sort of having the patient voice in the room is that POM is, is starting to think about, uh, well, as all organizations do, you know, every couple of years you need to think about your future. So we've been, we've been thinking about what that looks like, both in the Medicare fee-for-service space uh, and potentially beyond. And we have a Medicare beneficiary representative as part of that strategic planning work group. And and I think the the key message that should be sort of woven through all of the comments that Tim and I have shared today is that we really do this for the patient. And it's sometimes hard to remember that because there is so much sort of administrative burden that is part of healthcare. And it's it's just part of the healthcare system that we have, Um, but we really do it for the patient. And my sort of mantra always has been, you know, what would you do if that patient were your mom? Or what would you do if that patient were your grandma? And you would do the very best thing that you could possibly do for your mom or your grandma. And that has to be the backbone of of everything that we do at POMACO. And, you know, it has to be every part of every delivery of patient care and uh, decision that you make as part of Implementing a program or an initiative or setting goals for the next year. It's it's always about the patient.
3: Kendall, Tim, thank you so much. I love the detail you've gone into about the interactions, the trust, the caring for patients, and the focus on patients and, and improving their engagement. The other part of this equation is as you've alluded to, there's the physician engagement. And as the healthcare industry continues to shift from volume-based to value-based care, it's critical for organizations to understand. And control cost drivers and determine ways to improve quality. And one of the primary methods to increase success is by ensuring physicians understand the overall goals and their responsibilities in achieving them. And physicians as the frontline caregivers have the unique ability to drive bona fide change in their organization to deliver tangible results. Alternatively, if they're not working with your organization to meet shared objectives, they can easily undermine the potential success of the initiative. So we see it's imperative to understand how to empower and engage physician leaders across all settings. And POMACO supports over 5,700 physicians, and I'd like to know how you engage them to align ACO performance goals with financial incentives for providers. Is there a way that can be done by changing the narrative away from medical loss ratios that drive profits to insurers to focusing more on how patients and purchasers benefit from the efforts? How can you realign the conversation? So ACO discussions of value-based care are centered around advocating for the patient population and, and their spending, as you've talked about, Tim, premiums, deductibles, coinsurance, co-pays, et cetera, rather than arguing with an insurer about MLR and profit margin.
1: So maybe I could start with talking about communication and then I'll pass it to to Tim for um, some of the, to answer some of the other questions that you asked Dan, thank you. So we all know that communication is key to the success of of any organization. And I'm really pleased to share that our team has worked really hard to put together a welcome guide for all of our providers, which we'll release at the top of uh, 2022. And then the idea is that we would release it annually thereafter. And the guide is is really a tool that we will share with our physician organization partners. As we mentioned earlier, they really are the the link to the providers. And so we will share the guide with them and they will uh, share it with their providers in sort of alignment with the other payer initiatives that they have at the the physician organizations. And it includes all kinds of really great key information to help sort of set the year off right. It's a reflection of our, on our goals for 2021. It includes our performance in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, both cost and quality performance. And then it shares with providers, of course, our goals for 2022. What are we trying to accomplish for the next year so that they are aware of them and can really meaningfully contribute to the goals for the year. It also serves as a communication tool for all of the regulatory and compliance requirements that are required of ACOs, in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and I think that our team has done a really nice job putting together this document that will give everyone the base information that they need to be successful in 2022. We have engaged uh, an external marketing partner to make sure that it's visually appealing and something that uh, providers will will want to read. It's a quick read. It's four pages plus a cover page. It has lots of nice colors and white space and. The team has done a really great job. And I, of course, can't tell you how successful it will be because this is the first time that we're doing something like this, Uh, but I'm really proud of the team. And I really hope that it'll be a great communication tool to to start the year off right and just help us all sort of serve our beneficiaries to the best of our ability.
0: I think Kendall's right to start the answer to that question around communication. It's sort of cliched, but folks that go into medicine, whether doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, I think all of us. In, in the provider space are competitive folks to some extent. You know, we want to do the best we can. We want to serve our patients as best as possible. Uh, and that requires clarity of expectations. If we don't know where we're going, then any road is going to get us there. And, and what you heard Kendall talk about that setting expectations from the get-go and really giving the network clarity of information is key to that engagement strategy. I've been talking to several of our providers recently about risk scores, you know, something that's really important in the Medicare Advantage space, and it, it's really important in the Medicare uh, Shared Savings Program as well. And publicly available information, I'll just say that the POMACO patient population from a risk score perspective doesn't look as risky as other populations. But you know, we heard statistics earlier in this conversation about the health status of people across the state of Michigan. And so we know that across our state, there's a significant illness burden and our network needs to do a better job of documenting that. And so when I was talking with these providers about, you know, what are the engagement strategies? What are the levers that we can pull that are going to help them understand their performance? They're going to help them feel motivated and inclined to help us uh, document these conditions better, which will feed quality performance, will help us take better care of our patients, will help us identify the issues that our patients are struggling with so that we can get them the resources that they need in order to be able to have the health outcomes and health status that they want and that we want them to have. I wasn't shocked, but I was mildly surprised that it really wasn't about economic rewards for the providers. It was really more about data information clarity, the, the truth and trustworthiness of the information that they're being presented, and, and actually just a reflection and an acknowledgement of the severity of illness of the illness burden that their patient population faces. So you know, many of our providers just wanted recognition in the in the panel sizes that they were being asked to carry. They just wanted them risk-adjusted, and if I could promise them that we would modify their panel size based on the, the risk of their patient population, that's all the engagement that they were after. You know, they want to take the best care of the patients that they can and recognizing that they have a limited amount of time and can only care for a certain number of folks with certain severities of illness. That's a huge engagement lever for those folks, and they don't need any more money in their paycheck. They don't need any greater distribution of shared savings. They really just need that that recognition in the panel size, that they're caring for a a population of patients that are sicker than average once the data is collected. So really, the moral of that story, I think, is the physician engagement piece is going to vary, and it's incumbent upon us to really talk to the network, to talk to our providers about the levers that they need us to pull to help them understand their performance, be motivated to change, and and tying it back to how it's going to benefit their team, their practice, and ultimately their patients and their patients' health outcomes. Uh, Those are the drivers that our network is looking for for us to be able to provide them.
2: Let's talk now about primary care transformation to improve patient outcomes. Primary care is so foundational to a functional healthcare system and touches core issues in society, such as relational trust, deep empathy, community building, surviving and thriving. And as we think about how critically important it is to align payment and compensation with the type of provider behaviors and performance, we'd like to see an advanced primary care ecosystem is the perfect model for disruptive innovation to transform care delivery and enhance patient outcomes. And of course, you need this for all the specialties, but it's unlikely that an aco can create great health outcomes and deliver accessible affordable coordinated care without a solid primary care foundation additionally primary care is one of the most fundamentally flawed parts of the system because of the fee for service payment and it's certainly set up in a way that needs to be optimized to provide better performance and managing and preventing chronic disease so i wanted to ask you both uh, how does pom aco approach primary care transformation to provide a more effective provider ecosystem. Can you outline various aspects of your ACO's advanced primary care models such as workflow optimization or interdisciplinary team-based care? I'd love to learn more about how you're engaging your primary care community.
0: Our approach to this is similar to what you've heard me talk about in a couple of other spaces so far because our network is so geographically dispersed and because the issues facing our providers and their patients really are highly variable based on the geography that they're in. And we've taken a bunch of different approaches to this over the years. And and the overarching theme behind all of it is really trying to build those capabilities in the local markets where it makes sense to do so. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, Many years ago, we worked to help our network develop greater care coordination and greater care management capabilities along ambulatory pharmacists embedded in primary care practices. And you know this isn't a particularly novel concept today, but eight years ago when we were working on this uh, was still relatively novel at the time. And the rural parts of our network, they really can't afford to embed a pharmacist in every individual practice. As you were just saying in the question, the fee-for-service model of payment really doesn't create the capacity to afford the funding for this in that fee-for-service environment in a rural practice. But when we aggregate that network, that rural network across that geography in the Northern part of the state, now they can afford to hire a pharmacist and share that person across multiple practices. And so we as an ACO together invested in this capability to train pharmacists across the geography that our providers were working there were, you know, pharmacists in every market available to work with those providers and their patients on medication reconciliation issues, on blood pressure management, on hemoglobin A1C goal attainment, and and really help those providers recognize the unique skill set that the pharmacist could bring to the practice and. And ultimately, in many ways, in many places, actually, the the providers were delegating some aspects of practice to the pharmacist so that the pharmacist was actually working directly with the patient and then freeing up the provider to work on some of the other issues that the provider might need to spend their time on. And really, the pharmacist became a force multiplier. And that looks different if that's done in the rural part of the state, that pharmacist embedding in the practice than it does in some of the more urban parts of the state. If, if you look at that model inside the University of Michigan Health System, those pharmacists may be shared around two or three different clinics, but they are deeply embedded in those primary care practices. And so again, that our ACO model is really to push the capability out to the network and allow the network to pick that capability up in a way that they're going to be able to engage with it and make it work in their individual space. I think the other thing I might Point out, we also spent a lot of time with our network working on annual wellness visit utilization and, and not just the utilization of the visit type, but really what the health outcome drivers were that we were hoping our providers could use the annual wellness visit to accomplish. So, you know, that annual wellness visit is a, is a great opportunity for the provider and the patient to really sit down and talk about health goals, quality measures. You know, things that are going to make a difference in that patient's life that aren't really focused around acute care needs and a new cough or some new abdominal pain or some new acute care issue that the patient might have. And really what we tried to do, for especially for the parts of our network that were not high utilizers of annual wellness visits historically, was try to help educate that part of the network about how to use the visit, what the outcome goals are that they should be targeting, and also how to use ancillary providers in that visit to right-size the amount of physician time and energy in that visit with the patient. So that the physician was targeted on the right questions that the patient needed the doctor for, but offloading some aspects of the visit to, you know, whether it's questionnaires or or other parts of it that a nurse could take care of or a medical assistant could take care of, to really try and use the entirety of the team available to that provider to accomplish all the different tasks that might be necessary in order to make that annual wellness visit the highest impact use of time possible for the patient, but also for the provider. And we saw huge gains in our quality measure performance, uh, saw huge gains in some patient satisfaction issues. And our providers, especially those who were not accustomed to using annual wellness visits, part of the reason they weren't using them is they were skeptical about the utility of the visit. And so that education that we did and that, that transformation work that we did to help them understand what the goals of the visit should be and, and how to get the work done across all of the team members they had available to them really converted large swaths of our network into seeing the value of these visits. And now almost 60% of our patients get an annual wellness visit every year, which is, which is really high if you look at other ACOs or you look at other data available. So you know, there's lots of different ways we've tried to tackle this. And it's, it's really all about meeting the network where they are enabling folks to use the resources available to them, and helping them learn from others across our network to take those resources and make it make sense for their patients in their space.
3: So clinical integration seems to be one of the most important and greatest challenges of our industry. The New England Journal of Medicine found that the average Medicare patient saw a median of two PCPs and five specialist physicians per year, and that's the median. When Elliot Fisher conceived the ACO model, he was particularly interested in how to integrate specialists into a value-based care strategy. ACOs as originally envisioned by Fisher were expected to be virtual networks of physicians that included specialists and surgeons. Fisher and his colleagues estimated that for every 100 beds in a hospital, 88 physicians are usually involved in the episode of care. Of these 88, only 30 are primary care physicians. As it is estimated, that up to 75% of healthcare expenditures are consumed in the care of chronic conditions and the care of those individuals tends to be fragmented across multiple providers and specialties, clinical integration certainly provides a solid foundation for health value because it can enhance communication between providers and constrain the resulting excessive costs from uncoordinated care. Can you describe some of the clinical integration initiatives underway in your ACO? How does Palm ACO work with both primary care physicians and specialists to improve care coordination, quality, and efficiency across a patient's continuum of care?
0: So I am a big fan of including specialist physicians in our ACO network. Our providers, our network hears me say all the time that I would much rather have specialists inside our network so that we can specifically work with them and collaborate with them in very transparent, robust, and meaningful ways, as opposed to leaving them outside the network and trying to work on collaboration issues where we're not all on the same team. I think one of the, the clearest advantages of having, having specialist providers in an ACO network is the ability to aggressively and actively share information with them. And it, it just creates a window for them to be able to see the impact of their decision-making on the broader perspective. I think all of us providers, when we're taking care of a patient, you know, we're, we're really focused on the individual in front of us and really focused on taking care of the issue that we are best suited to solve. And, and that's the way it should be when you're taking care of an individual patient in front of you. That's exactly the right perspective. When you step into an ACO, you by definition are saying, I want to understand the impact of quality, of financial performance, of patient satisfaction on a population level. And so you are already opening yourself up to looking at your practice, not just on that singular patient window, but across the entirety of the population that you are interacting with. And having the ability to share information with a specialist, whether it's an orthopedic surgeon or cardiologist or whomever, about the impact of their decision-making on a on more than just the individual quality of care that they're providing, but all of the up and downstream consequences of their interaction with the patient is hugely beneficial. I can tell you that when I sit down and I talk with specialists about their participation in an ACO, what what their contribution to our performance is, from again, from a quality perspective, from a patient satisfaction perspective, from a financial perspective, universally, they welcome this perspective of information because, again, it's exactly why they got into an ACO, and they really want to be able to participate in that community focus, in that population focus of the care that they are delivering. And so then, you know, we talk about different improvement initiatives, we talk about, you know, overutilization factors, we talk about adherence to quality measures and that sort of stuff. And it just, it gives them a new window into their practice that, at least in my experience, the specialists are really interested in picking up. It doesn't change, you know, the, the person that needs a cholecystectomy, that needs their gallbladder taken out, their clinical indications to take out a gallbladder are still there. We're not changing the surgeon's practice. We're just giving them a greater window into the impact of the decisions that they're making for their patient. And we have found that to be hugely successful. And, and no matter what initiative that we're working on, whether it's post acute care utilization after joint replacements, whether it's frequency of left heart catheterizations, whether it's the, uh, the dialysis initiative that you heard me talk about a second ago, the specialists are always happy to engage in these conversations. They're always happy, and again, in my experience, always happy to hear about their contribution to the population dynamics uh, that are occurring in the measurement that we have for our our attributed patient population.
1: One of the other ways that we're really focusing next year on uh, a couple key initiatives, key goals, really, one of those is uh, readmissions, another is uh, inpatient spend. And so our clinical committee in uh, December of 21 kicked off a really robust discussion in preparation for 22 to start brainstorming initiatives in this space. And we recognized in, in that meeting and in the sort of homework assignment that, that everyone uh, took, took home with them and will we'll bring back in January, is that it will include both primary care physicians and specialists and inpatient, outpatient, where it really will take all of us. And so the, the clinical integration is, is key and we recognize that.
2: So I'd like to ask you both to speak about some of the work that POMACO is doing to advance health equity. I heard you speak, Tim, earlier about the large amount of patients that you have in rural communities. And I know the ACO does serve a lot of rural, uh, marginalized, minoritized communities. And as we think about the immense challenge of social determinants of health and caring for the most vulnerable In our society, we need to apply a lens that internalizes the actual root cause of those inequities and you know everyone, of course, deserves healthcare and the resources necessary to achieve it and I know society itself is really working now to dismantle the fence and remove the barriers and to give everyone the opportunity to achieve their health goals. In the most effective ways for them value based care is very much a part of that so unfortunately dismantling that fence is extremely difficult because there's so many entrenched and pervasive things in our society. However, I I know this in this movement that we're in in value based care there's now more of a conscientious focus to address health inequities and racial disparities of care a lot of that has come about. Because of the pandemic and society really seeing some of the systemic issues that we have in our industry and providing commensurate outcomes amongst different segments of the population. And, you know, NACOS even uh, recently released a white paper advocating for more support from government agencies to facilitate health equity and social determinants of health work. And at the federal level, I know there's a lot of discussion about reengineering alternative payment models to include health equity as a financial measure of success. So I just wanted to ask you both, I mean, what role does an organization like yours play as a scalable solution for addressing systemic issues related to race and poverty and marginalized communities. And how do you see the the value-based care movement evolving over time as both society and policy leaders become conscientious of racial disparities in care? I'd love to get your perspective on this.
1: One of the key approaches of POM, ACO, that you've heard us talk about a couple times, is that care really is delivered locally. So this means that providers and care management teams locally have the flexibility and the the knowledge to engage their patients in the way that they know best. Uh, So one of the things that we do at the POMACO level is we, of course, have regular dashboards that track all sorts of things based on claims data. One of the things that we continually uh, track and monitor is uh, racial disparities in care. That dashboard is available to all of our provider organizations at any time. It's updated regularly, and it's part of our uh, clinical conversations, our clinical committee conversations, and other committee and board conversations too. And so it's it's something that we look at regularly. We are monitoring sort of use of uh, PCP visits and annual wellness visits and immunization rates, and it's a top of mind.
0: Yeah, along those lines, I think the benefit that pom brings to this conversation is clarity of data so we can't solve problems that we don't fully understand and having access to the medicare claims data which includes you know racial demographic zip code other data other information that helps us understand some of the influencers of social determinants of health and health outcomes really gives us a window to be able to dig into these issues and understand where Differences exist, which gives us an opportunity to begin to target potential interventions, or at least go deeper and ask better questions. Without good data, we don't even necessarily understand the right questions to ask, and, and we can spend a lot of time and energy trying to solve problems that we think we understand, but, but are completely and totally missing the mark. This is another area where we've leaned heavily on our beneficiaries to help us understand this better. They spent a lot of time back in the uh, middle parts of 2019, pre-COVID, talking about social isolation and loneliness, because that was a factor that was coming out in surveys that were being done across our patient population, really querying and looking for social determinants issues, trying to find those social determinants uh, issues that we could, as a healthcare system, as as a network, help our providers and help our patients with. Social isolation and loneliness was the most common gap or need that our beneficiaries were identifying. And so we actually went, we went back to our beneficiary committee and and asked them, what does this mean to you? What are the solutions that you would like to see? What are the things that you would like your doctor, your health system, your hospital to do to help solve these problems? And we use that information to try and help us craft the solutions or, or more specifically, really partner with the organizations that can craft the solutions. You know, especially when you look at our network, we have a large number of primary, of independent primary care providers and independent specialist providers. It's unlikely that an orthopedic surgeon outside of Lansing is going to be able to do much for an individual patient who, you know, identifies social isolation and loneliness as a as a gap. But if we can work as an ACO to partner with organizations in local communities who are solving these issues or helping solve these issues, whether it's transportation, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's social, social isolation and loneliness. You know, I think that's really the way forward for us to be able to begin to close some of these gaps. And then the issues that Kendall was describing around, you know, populations access to care, underutilization, which is really something that I've personally started to think more about. We talk in an ACO, we talk in a lot of our healthcare settings about overutilization of certain services. I've actually started to ask kind of the inverse question, where are those services that are being underutilized and by which patient populations and why are they being underutilized? And, and can we be driving more positive healthcare utilization as a lever to move away from some of the overutilization of other services that we want or help want to help patients avoid in the first place? Again, going back to the dialysis example, right? We want to drive patients back to the dialysis center to get the dialysis they need so that we can help them avoid the hospitalization, help them avoid uh, the emergency department as an example of that underutilization question. So I think data, I think collecting information from our patients and really leveraging our scale to work with community partners to close these gaps is the space where an ACO like ours can help begin to solve these issues.
3: Tim, you set me up perfectly for the next question. You're an emergency medicine physician, so I'd like to get more of your perspective on super utilizers and overutilization. Many of our listeners out there remember the 2011 Atul Gawande article in the New Yorker entitled Hotspotters. In that article, I still remember a sentence that read something to the effect that all hospitalizations and ER visits should be considered failures until proven otherwise. It talked about the need to dig deep into each ER visit and hospitalization and learn what presented prior to that visit that can be used to decrease avoidable ERs and hospitalizations. Since the data show that approximately 50% of ER visits are avoidable. I'd love to better understand your thoughts on how we can better engineer ER diversion programs and proactive population health interventions into ACOs in order to avoid unnecessary emergency care. Since decreasing ER visits and hospitalizations is not only about what we do today, but how we care for populations in the long term. Can you share more of your perspective on this as both an ACO executive and an emergency medicine physician?
0: I like Dr. Gawande. I think he's a very smart guy, but I'm going to amend the sentence that you paraphrased and say that I think it is fair to look at all ER visits as a failure of some point in society or the healthcare system. But I don't think an ER visit is a failure as a a blanket statement. Every ER visit is probably the most rational response that any individual patient could make to whatever question or health problem that they face early on in my career, before I was in population health, before I had any kind of glint in my eye of doing what I do today, I actually started working on frequent visitors to the University of Michigan Emergency Department and and trying to do exactly what Dr. Gawande said, which was deep dives into every ER visit and understanding what was driving that patient's ER utilization behavior. And in every case, it was a failure of some point along the healthcare system And or society, and whether it's again food insecurity, housing insecurity, poverty, social isolation, and loneliness, all of these factors drive presentations to the emergency department. Lack of access to other healthcare settings drive utilization of emergency departments. There is no silver bullet that's going to move the needle of ED utilization. I think avoidable ER utilization is probably the right term. I get really frustrated when I hear people use the word unnecessary emergency department utilization, because it, it certainly seemed necessary to the patient at the time that they made the decision to show up. And I think really what we have to do is is twofold. One is you know take care of the acute need that the patient has, whatever it is that drove them to seek care at that particular moment. But then the larger question of what are the access barriers that prevent the patient from being able to seek alternative care, you know, Does that patient work a job seven days a week, nine to five, when the primary care doctors are open and there's nobody after hours that they can see other than the emergency department? I think that there's a reasonable percent of ED visits in certain markets where that may be a primary driver, but it's going to be highly variable in in every specific space and in every specific patient's instance. And I think the most important thing that we can do is continue to look at this from a patient lens. What does the patient need from us as healthcare providers, and how can we engineer a healthcare system that enables the patient to access the care that they need in the most efficient and equitable way possible? And sometimes that's going to be the emergency department, and that's okay. Our doors are open for anybody that needs this. Every person that works in an emergency department, whether it's a, a nurse, a PA, an ER doctor, that's the job that we signed up for. But I think as healthcare administrators, when we look at avoidable costs, avoidable spending in healthcare. The question we have to ask ourselves is what you heard me say a second ago. How do we engineer a healthcare delivery system that enables patients to access the care that they need in the most efficient and equitable way possible? And if we keep that as our central focus, then the rest of it is sort of noise in some respects. That's my perspective on that question.
2: Well, I wanted to thank you both for joining us. I thought we'd lay in the plane here and finish up the interview. I mean, right now we're in the beginning of 2022, and I believe there's a lot of hope and optimism to look for in the future of the healthcare industry as we look to win this race to value. And this past year, 2021, I know it's been dramatic for a lot of us. And in terms of the value movement, there's certainly been a lot of drama along the way with um, the evolution of Alternative payment models with policy changes and market developments, throwing some of those models into real uncertainty. And 2021, you know, also from every type of accountable care organization to bundle payments to the rollout of the direct contracting program for physician groups under Medicare. I know there's a lot of work and rework to make sure that we can fine tune and, you know, create a, a better landscape for the future of value-based care. So I, I thought as we finish up our conversation today... I'd love to get your parting thoughts on this movement nationally to value-based care. I mean, do you think we're on the right track in terms of the MSSP setting the stage for the future? And then for those organizations out there listening that are like yours that are leading in value-based care, how can they further enhance their risk-based contract portfolios to better serve patients and improve clinical outcomes for the future?
1: I think my sort of parting words are pretty short and and simple, which is, the we, value-based care is, is all about providing high quality care in the most cost-efficient way. We all know that, but it's hard and it's complicated. So I, I guess what I would say is that when it gets hard and when it gets complicated and the administrative burden gets high and the pandemic has its ups and downs, just remember that we are all in it for the patient, which as a reminder, you know, includes all of us. We are all patients too. So I'll just I'll just leave you uh, with it one last time. Is you know when you're designing a program or you're thinking about how to uh, implement a value-based care or deliver care to a particular patient in a particular setting, what if it were your mom? How would you treat that patient, and what kind of value-based world would you design for her?
0: I think we've crossed the point where skepticism about value-based care has has largely fallen away. I think it's it's uncommon for me anymore to run across an administrator or a provider who either doesn't understand that value-based care is a thing or doesn't understand at least the, the basic concepts associated with value-based care. And I think that's a major milestone that we should celebrate. Uh, this is no longer a niche field or an experimental topic that providers and health systems are debating about. I don't think there's enough scale in value-based care payment arrangements yet for the full force and effort of improvement that we would hope for as a country to really be focused on improving value writ large. But I think we're on the way. I don't envy anybody that works in the Medicare agency or in a commercial insurer that is working on developing value-based payment arrangements. Our healthcare economy today is very fragmented. The, the fee-for-service marketplace that we've developed, you know every individual provider has really gotten, a, gotten really skilled at maximizing their performance in the economy that healthcare functions in today. And so to build value-based payment arrangements, I think the trap that faces those folks that are creating value-based payment arrangements is to turn toward reinforcing those silos, creating value-based payment arrangements that focus on individual specialties or individual clinical conditions. I think we as an industry need to continue to push toward value-based payment arrangements that bring more providers together that broader focus on population, that broader focus on the impact all of our decisions as providers have together in the care and value for the patients that we are responsible for collectively. I think we all sort of agree the underlying tenets that push us toward value are the fact that the silos in healthcare today create many of the communication problems and inefficiencies that none of us are super thrilled with. So focusing the development of future value-based payments on those models that bring providers closer and closer and closer together, I'm hopeful is the way that we'll continue forward. That's what we do in POM. That's what we are you know, really working toward achieving together. I think that's the right pathway for all of us as a healthcare economy. Uh, I think it's what's going to serve our patients best, but none of it's easy. And, and I think we've got a long road ahead of us still, but I do think that we're on the right
2: path. Tim and Kendall, I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the Race to Value podcast and sharing the wonderful work that you're doing there at POMACO. Thank you. This has been really great.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Yeah,
3: thank you both. Really enjoyed our time together.